This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sockledge, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Well, Ken, so before we, we dive into more specific questions, you know, I can give you a, a nice introduction of being the you know creator uh, and the lead creator of Bioshock, of course, and now you're the creative director and co-founder of Ghost Story Games. But give us a story of how things got started for you, um, you know, years back, even before Bioshock. How did you kind of get into the industry? And then we'll dive into the storytelling side of things. Yeah, so I uh, started off, I didn't really have a sense I was going to ever be a creative individual I started off actually as like a sound tech and doing like theater and like high school and at some this like arts arty summer camp called Bucks Rock and one day I just like I think there was like a, like a talent show or something and I'm just like I'm gonna write a play it just sort of like came into my head and I sat down and I like in one sitting wrote this one act play and um, it was like it's like finding a room in your house that you didn't know existed. That's like full of treasure, you know? <laughs> and, uh, it was such a, I was just glowing. Like I, it was the most amazing experience. It, it wasn't like a, uh, Oh, is this, you know, something I like? It was just like this transformative moment. I had no idea I could do it. And then we put on the play and you know, people seemed to respond. I actually think I acted in it. It was just like a two person play. Me and this other um, girl. And, um, it was it was great, and then I just started writing more plays, and, and you know, and putting them on. We like my uh, we put on plays, and like I would produce and write and um, direct sometimes plays in my college. Um, they have this sort of program where you could like get like twenty, you know, they would give you like fifty bucks for to make you know budget to make a play, but they had spaces you could put them on, you get an audience in, and I sort of got into it, and then. Um, I met a, through various reason, uh, methods, I met a guy named John Robin Bates, who was a playwright, and he read some of my work, and he liked it, and he was talking to me about it, and I'm like, well, how do I, you know, I knew I, need, I was getting towards the end of college, I'm like, well, how do I make money doing this? And, because I was very worried, you know, I was going to be cut off the moment I left college by my parents financially, and so, you know, I was like, gee, I, I got to figure out some way to make money, and um, he said, well, send it to my agent, and I ended up getting rep. The agent loved it and asked me to write a screenplay. So I ended up being a screenwriter and uh, getting flown out to Hollywood when I was like 19. And I had this huge impression that like, oh, geez, I'm going to be this famous screenwriter and it's going to be awesome. And I got one job and I never got another job after that. And I spent like, it was really demoralizing because I, I was like this little wunderkind. I had won all these awards. You know, when I was doing these plays, I was getting, you know, put in these special programs in New York off Broadway where I would, you know, they was getting trained because I had won all these awards. I got an award, you know, reward from the governor of New Jersey and for this arts thing. And I thought I was going to be this, you know, wonderkind and that didn't happen. I flamed out really fast and um, it was really demoralizing. So I spent the next, you know, my twenties basically doing, you know, like computer consulting and graphic design and just trying to figure out. And I thought I had kind of like had my shot and I blew it. And um, and then, I, you know, I was always a gamer, always a hardcore gamer, going back from my young childhood. And then I was, like, reading a magazine. I saw an ad for a game design position in this company called Looking Glass. And I loved Looking Glass. They made um, – they sort of made the first – you know, if you know my games, um, they were all heavily inspired by this game called Ultima Underworld and this game called System Shock, um, the first System Shock. And I love these games. And they had an ad for a game designer. I didn't even really know what a game designer did. But they flew me up there. I, yeah, I sent in a resume. They flew me up there. Um, I interviewed and I got the job. And all of a sudden, boom, I was a game designer. And it's probably because they saw my experience in Hollywood. And they thought that I was, you know, because that was a time when full motion video was a big thing. Um, the old timers here might remember that. And um, 
so I think that's why I got the job. They thought I could like write, you know, scripts for their full motion video stuff, which never, I never ended up doing, but I ended up, um, yeah, working at looking glass and getting very lucky to be in the, in the beginning of what eventually became thief. And, you know, I got to write sort of the initial design doc for that. Um, and actually I just found it, um, in my house. So I saw, I was reading through it the other day. Um, and, um, and then I became a, then I became a game designer. Then a year and a half later, I started with two uh, other people with, um, John Chan, Ralph Irby. I started Irrational games and we did system shock too. And that sort of kicked us off and that sort of led to Bioshock and et cetera, et cetera. So Ken, before we go down that route, take a step back right to that point that you said the initial design doc and you just found it, right? You know, for folks in the audience that may know what that is or don't, walk us through that as you think about it and, you know, so as people get experience, but then can uh, you know, hear from you and then learn to apply that maybe in their own life and their own storytelling. What's the value of that document? So, like, I would start generally, like, Thief started with me writing, like, a five or six page um, sort of, like, what is this game? What is the world? Who do you play? You know, what's your challenge? What is your tool set? on a very high level, and that's, you know, five to 10 pages. And then we had a, a concept artist I work with at Looking Glass named Rob Waters, who ended up coming to Irrational and doing, you know, most of our concept, you know, character concept work and um, through Bioshock Infinite. Um, and he would do a bunch of drawings, so you have a bunch of drawings of the initial characters in this game, Thief, for those who played it, and, you know, some characters remain, some left. And then once you, you know, once people like that, and people like, let's make this game, I went off and I wrote, a longer document that really went into detail. It's probably, I don't know, like 50, 60 pages, something like that. Um, it says, like, you know, it goes down to the level of like, you know, who are you? You know, what are the missions? You know, what are some sample, you know, what are some missions? Um, what are your tool? What's your whole tool set? You know, what, who are all, what are all the enemies? How do they work? What are the core mechanics of the game? What is the, you know, what are the major beats of the story? Um, and, that what came from, I think, we don't really do it that way anymore, but that came from sort of coming from, you know, you know, like playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Because when you play Dungeons and Dragons, they have this little module you buy, right? It has the whole, you know, it has the, and there's a Dungeon Master's Guide, it's a player's handbook. So it's really like a very compressed version of, you know, if you're playing D&D. The player's handbook, the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Monster Manual, and the, and the module of the adventure itself. Um, it's, and we don't really do it that way anymore, but that's how I did, you know, and the Thief, we did that for, we did that for System Shock 2, I wrote one for that too, with some help from other people on the team. Um, and then, you know, you sort of have a framework, and then you start building the game off that framework, because you want to stay, you want to stay in as cheap a form of development as you can for as long as you can, right? Um you want to, like, things on paper are very cheap, making changes on paper. Once you start programming, once you start building art assets, changes become much more difficult. Um, but, so you said, so, so it's, it's pretty, comp it's reasonably, I didn't read the whole thing, it's reasonably comprehensive um, as a starting point for the game, but the game then always changes as you're making it. Mm -hmm. Now, for folks in the audience, if you know Ken, you absolutely know a lot of the history and great things that he's created. At the same time, for, for a lot of the new folks in the room, and we're growing rapidly over 250 people, um, you know, Ken created a game, many games, but you know, as they become some of the best in the world, I hear, I see, I enjoy the aspect of the storytelling within your games, right? It's, it's truly unique. It seems so much more powerful than a lot of the other, you know, games that are out there. And so when you were creating these games, do you feel like you were one of the first or were there many people coming before you? And what were you kind of applying into that moment? Because when you created these games, I can't imagine there were many out there that were putting in such interactive storytelling and, and, and depth and, uh, you know, so much value. Can you walk us through that experience of, did you feel like you were revolutionizing the space or what? No, I mean, like, there were people, like, the Japanese, you know, whether it's Final Fantasy, had very in-depth storylines. Like Final Fantasy VII, for instance, was, I think, something that a lot of people responded to. That is, um, And that had, it was on the PlayStation 1, and that had, like, extensive storytelling sequences and people really connected to the story and that became really important to them. I think Metal Gear had some story, you know, there's an original Metal Gear and then Metal Gear Solid, I think, especially on the, um, on the PlayStation. So a lot of it was happening in Japan, 
my big inspiration was actually, you know, we went on to do this game called System Shock 2. That was our first game as a studio. And we worked with Looking Glass on that. And I I found the story in System Shock 1, which I didn't work on. I, you know, I played it as a gamer. Really interesting, especially they had a villain um, called Shodan, who's a sort of insane how-like AI, you know, 2001 um, how. And... I really saw a great villain in her, and so that was really what I cared about with System Shock. Is you know, if you have a great villain, that's a great starting point. Like any movie, uh, uh, movies, I think a lot often, you know, especially more genre movies, live and die by their villains. And so I was very lucky to inherit that 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 character. And what I think I brought to the table was a different set of influences. I think that's what made me a little different. Um, from people is that my background, you know, I was a theater major in college and, um, you know, a bit, uh, you know, the kind of theater, um, the, 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 I, I, you know, I took, I, you know, I read the Greek classics and I had read, you know, Shakespeare and, and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. And I also liked, I was a huge film buff. Um, you know, I, I was a screenwriter, right? So I was a huge film buff as well. So I, I had all these influences like film noir, for instance, and thief, this game we did, it's basically a film noir. It's set in a fantasy setting, you know, like a sort of, um, not a classical like Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy, but it's but similar, like, a, you know, a medieval setting with, you know, monsters and supernatural elements and magic and all those things. But I sort of really took a, a, a film noir approach. And it, other people have done that in genre, like Blade Runner is a film noir, right? It's just completely based on that genre. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with film noir, it's sort of a genre created in the 30s and 40s about... No, the, the Maltese Falcon kind of private detective living, you know, a, a morally gray character living in a very dark, morally gray world. Um, and he often, he often is often a private detective, often somebody, but almost always somebody sort of small in the world, not a major player who gets caught up in over their head with very powerful people and has to make very interesting moral choices along the way that um, don't traditionally match the notion of a hero, sort of the, it's a dawn of the anti-hero. Um, especially if you go back to watch Maltese Falcon now, you can't really view um, um, uh, Bogart's character as, as a hero. He's really dark and quite almost kind of not a good guy. Um, and so even though the game is called Thief and we have this idea to do a game called Thief, I was like, well, he's a thief, right? He's not a traditional hero. In video games at that point, heroes tend to be very, very good guys. And the villains tend to be very, very bad guys. But I like the nuance of telling the story where that wasn't clear. So I was starting from a point where you're dealing with a character who breaks into people's house and steals stuff, right? And so I really dove into that. And I couldn't have done that without the influences I had. These are the movies I grew up with. So I think I, I grew up with a different set of influences than a lot of game developers who tend to read... A lot of game developers come from a science, like they, you know, they, they're really fans of like science fiction, fantasy novels, and fantasy movies. And I, that stuff's all fine, but that wasn't really what I was, the world I came out of. And so I was able to do this merger of genres, and I think that's the, that's really what I brought to the table is a, is the, the, the my different my, my interests. You know, Bioshock had you know. In, you know, objectivism and Art Deco, right? Those are the things that ne didn't, weren't necessarily big things in the gaming space. So I would always, in every game I've done, I pulled sort of, you know, um, my weird interests together. And I think that's what made my stuff a little different. It's just the stuff I was drawn to as a fan. Now, so Ken, I love where we're going. Let's, let's dive into the character side of things. For folks in the audience, help us, you can use an example of maybe, maybe one of your games before and, and we can keep going down the path you're going on. Help us document, and actually now you're a listener, so let me just make you back as a speaker. I'm not sure why that happened, Ken, so yeah, now you're back up. Um, help us understand how you'd pull those influences out, right? We, almost like if we wanted to create a, a character from scratch right now um, out of thin air, what's that process that you would do of pulling those influences together and putting it down on paper or however you document it? Um, well... I always start with, you know, who, who is this person? What do they want? What's in their way? Um, that's the most basic, you know, that's the most basic roots of narrative. Who do I, who, who is he? What do they want? And who's, who or what is in their way? And then you start from there. Um, so in, you know, Bioshock, for instance, 
you're in a plane crash. What do you want to do? And you're stuck in rapture. What do you, what do you want to do? You want to get out of rapture. And we, we sort of would leverage the, you know, that game. That was very much, who are you and what do you want? The, who are you question became something we played with that you are not necessarily who you thought you were. Um, and, um, so we tend to use very simple stories as a root cause. Like if you look at Bioshock, it's a, it's a Robinson Crusoe story, right? You're in a plane crash, you're shipwrecked on a weird desert island, in this case, you know, an underwater city, and you need to get off. And that story is old as time. Um, and in um, Bioshock Infinite, it was, you know, you're a detective with a mission to find a girl, right? Because you've got a debt to pay off. Um, and once we christen, that takes, a, that actually, to get to that level of simplicity is what takes a long time. Because usually you start off with, way too much complexity um because the reason you have so much complexity is you generally don't know the story you're trying to tell so question i ask all the time in the studio and i'm I'm, you know the team has i think embraced it which is great you know if i see somebody make uh, art acid or something and it's not working for me i don't often say like oh i don't like it or this is terrible or anything like that i say the first question i ask is like okay what what story are you trying to tell because it may be a function that they have a good story and they're just not telling it through the thing they're making, whether that's a writer, programmer, whatever. All we do is tell stories. And if they answer the question, quite often if the thing isn't good, they don't know the answer to that question. And so I sort of send them off or we talk about it. I say, go figure out the story you're trying to tell or we talk about, you know, we talk about the story we're trying to tell. And once they know the story they're trying to tell, you, things tend to get a lot clearer. Um, same with me with what I'm writing is quite often I will start with a mess, um, way too many ideas, way all over the place, really unfocused. And then, and it's always because I don't know the story we're trying to tell. Once you know the story you're trying to tell, like, okay, this is a guy who's trying to get off a desert island. Um, that makes life a lot simpler. You think of like a movie, like good movies that are structured really well tend to have actually very simple especially genre films have simple stories in the sense like, you know, if you, if you ask Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark in every scene, every scene, what are you trying to do? He would say, I'm trying to get the Ark every scene. Even when he goes into the tent and finds Marion tied up, he doesn't rescue her, right? He, 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 because that would get in the way of his goal, which is to find the Ark. And that's a driving thing. And that energy of knowing the goal of the character will drive you forward. I wouldn't be, you know, if we're talking about writers, you know, and artists here, like I wouldn't be afraid to play around, especially in as cheap a way as you can on paper, you know, as long as you can. And I've made the mistake many, many times of not getting that clear before we start building things. Um, you know, that's, I think if I'm going to critique myself, that's the biggest critique I'd give myself. Um, is what? Specify that again. What's it, the critique? Is, is is starting is going to expensive forms of development before we know those sort of basics, um, and it's really hard to get to simplicity. Really hard to get to simplicity, and you often think that you have something good, and almost always getting to the good thing is making it simpler. Almost always, and that doesn't mean making it dumber or making the characters, or making the conflicts. You know, like okay, he's the devil, he's an angel, fight. Um, it's really about understanding your character, understanding their most basic wants, and then building from that simple thing up rather than building something complex and try to narrow it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. But I think if you ask yourself as a writer in every scene or as an artist in every asset you build, what story are you trying to tell? that's going to get you really far. I think that's probably that's that those words of what story are you trying to tell seven words uh, is probably the most important thing I've ever, you know, <laughs> development practice I've ever come up with. Um, because I use it all the time. Probably people make fun of me behind my back for asking it because it probably gets annoying, but it's really, it's a really helpful tool. Great. Great. Well, Hey, you, you mentioned something that I want to key in on. I have a, a ton of questions here. And by the way, folks in the audience, in a little bit, I'm going to be inviting some folks up. If you have questions, please send me a direct message. We'd love to bring you up. We do only have specific time today. So, of course, I, I, we need to be selective. But send me a DM, and we'd love to have you up so you can talk with Ken and ask him some questions. Um, certainly not about future gaming, but what are we talking about today? It's storytelling. And Ken, you mentioned something that was really important. It's kind of what's the story we're trying to trying to tell 
What's that goal that they're trying to achieve and making it as simple as possible? So how do we get between the start and the end? And I can only imagine, you know, breaking it into micro moments, right? And having also relationships. That's a huge aspect of storytelling, but especially with the games that that you're putting together. Those are two different topics. I'll let you choose which one you want to go down, but breaking the story up into chunks, into micro moments, at the same time, the relationship aspect of it. Which way would you like to go? I like you to go whichever way you like. <laughs> well, let's go back that? to the micro moments in a second, because while we're talking about characters, relationships are huge, whether in real life right now, as we build relationships. I mean, it's besides us being robots, it's what makes us different. It's being connected. It's, it's creating love and joy and, and that type of human connectivity. So as we think about that and building that into storytelling, whether in movies and books and really becoming attached to those characters, well, in gaming, you become that character and build those relationships. So how do you think about that as, as we take it from that initial hero or villain and then building it out from there to tell a story? Yeah, I mean, storytelling is not real life. So you know, when I think about relationships between characters, quite often what you're talking about is conflict. Um, almost, there's only like really a couple kinds of scenes in, in, in narrative. You know, there's like exposition, which is always the hardest stuff because that's like a character who has to, you know, tell, do all the setup and tell the background. or And that's always tricky to do. And you try to do that as visually as you possibly can. Um, you know, in, in Bioshock, it's, you know, the descent to rapture. You have Andrew Ryan show up and um, who's sort of the builder of the city. Um, and you, he sort of explains, you know, why, what the city is, why it exists. And that gives you a grounding. And that's all exposition. But then almost immediately you get into conflict, which is two characters in a scene. They want different things out of a scene. And if you go watch TV shows and movies, especially good ones, you pretty much can see it in every scene. Two, two characters enter a scene. One character wants one thing. The other character doesn't want to give it to them. There's a conflict, and that's where the scene goes. That drives – that's the engine of 80% of narrative. Mm. Um, and so relations – so the question of relations is how do you – you know, how do you have characters who have interesting conflicts? Now, interesting is a very hard – that's a very hard problem, right? Because what's interesting? Well, that's different for – that's different. Um but if you don't have conflict, if you feel your story's inert, if you feel it's not going anywhere, you've not, you've not really probably done the job of thinking enough about conflict. And a lot of times, I think it's a problem you see like on Netflix shows, especially now when they used to be like 11 or 12 episodes in a season, they kind of cut it down and they felt very, very bloated. You just have a lot of scenes where you're like, why is that scene there? And the reason it's there is probably because they thought it should, you know, they thought they needed 11 episodes to get the audience. They did. Um, and they often would not have the, enough conflict to fuel the, the, the show. And conflict is what drives narrative. It's always what drives narrative. Um, that conflict doesn't have to be, you know, ro you know, humans versus evil robots. That conflict could be, you know, something, you know, you watch a, um, you know, There Will Be Blood, or, you know, a Paul Thomas Anderson film. And the conflict is between, um, you know, Daniel Plainview and the preacher. That's the main conflict that drives certain, almost every one of their scenes even if it's really subtle, is about deep conflict between those characters. And he did a great job in writing that script because he made two characters, neither one of whom is a good guy, but they want mutually exclusive things. And it's a zero-sum game between the two of them. And that drives a lot of the movie. There's also conflict, you know, between Daniel Plainview and his son about who he is and, his, and how he, and how he, you know, this feeling that he wants to be a father, and his, but also that he's essentially a you know a human manipulation machine, mm -hmm. and that's a con there's a conflict between himself, and that conflict eats him, and eventually you know turns him you know he he loses that battle for his own humanity, um, and and that that drives that as well. But every scene, so even though you can have multiple conflicts going at one time, if you know that film, there's a scene where he has to through the conflict with the preacher, he has to. Um, he has to convert to Christianity and he's not, and he's not religious. And that scene ends up being a conflict about with himself. First it's a conflict with the preacher and it turns into a conflict with himself about his feelings about abandoning his son, which he did when his son gets into an accident. He just basically ships him off. So, but the, almost every, almost all scenes are driven by conflict. And that, if you don't have that, if your scenes feel inert, those are good questions. Yourself, what story are you trying to tell in the scene? What's the conflict here? Um, and so, but then on top of that, you want characters who feel 
have believable motivations. A lot of times you'll see things feel unnerved because the character wants what the plot wants, not what the character wants. And that that often makes characters feel undriven, especially like in, once you get into really big budget movies and you know huge stories, you kind of ask yourself, it's like, well, you know, like I'll, I'll be watching some movies and you're like, well, why, why is this character fighting these aliens here? If it's not for survival, like why are they on board for this mission? Like some of the superhero movies, which I, I like a lot, there's a lot of characters, they just don't have the time to really drive why they're there. And so you don't, they feel less developed. Like if, if you look at say Iron Man 1, you know, I'm talking a lot of big budget films today, but Iron Man 1 is awesome because it's a character who's conflicted. He's a character who has made weapons his whole life and then he's almost killed by one of his own weapons, right? And so it's a redemption story. He, his, his want, what do you want? I want to redeem myself for all the horrible things I've done. I want to prove to myself I'm a, not a terrible person. And they go back to that theme often with that character. And that's why he works so much better than a lot of the other characters where, you know, say like Ant-Man, even from the first opening of the movie, it's really unclear. Like he's both a criminal, but he, was, did, he went to jail for doing something that seemed kind of noble. And yet he's, so it's a redemption story of a character who doesn't really need redemption because he actually went to jail for a noble cause. And that's what, that's what makes that movie not work very well compared to something like Iron Man is because the, the character desires are fairly unclear and his conflict is really unclear. Um, and you, I think it's all fixable. Like if they just made him really a criminal and really made it a redemption story, I think that story would have worked better. But they didn't want to go there because they wanted to make it like a friendly, lighter movie with Paul Rudd. Um, and he wasn't, I think Red could have done it as an actor, but they just didn't have the conflict to drive that you bought into. So you're kind of like, why is everybody being such a jerk to this guy? He went to jail for a good cause. So, you know, Ken, we're almost at the halfway mark. I'm going to ask one more question. Then I'm going to invite some more uh, friends up from the audience to ask their questions as well. Great. So we've talked about kind of how, uh, you know, creating a story is happening and character development a, a little bit, but then we need to get to that goal at the end. So how do you, create those moments throughout the story you know because it can go in a million ways and i'm sure at some point you backtrack and you need so many options how do you start to think through that the immensity of that you know project in itself um and, and help us walk through the specific steps for the audience so i think another like i try to find as many objective rules to drive you know myself as i can because they're, they're very helpful. It's like, you know, what, what story are you trying to tell? Another question I ask myself is what problem are you trying to solve? Meaning, why is this scene here? Like, why does it need to be here? What problem are you trying to solve in the story? Um, and if, it, if, you, if there's not a problem you're trying to solve, that scene shouldn't be there. But I think the other thing is, and this is, I didn't come up with this at all. This is ancient, but writing is rewriting. And I, I think when I meet a writer, there's two questions I look at. Is one is, you know, can they, do they have talent? And second is, so if the answer is yes, go to question two. If the answer is no, they probably shouldn't, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for them to be successful as a writer. But, but talent is, is a, actually, I'd say 25% of it. It's a binary thing. Do you have some talent or not? The second question is, do you understand that writing is rewriting? Um, you will fail over and over again. And if you like, I've often, people show me stuff and I'm like, well, what draft is this? And like, oh, I just, my, it's my only draft. You know, I wrote it. It's a story. It's done. See, I think that's viewing failure as your friend rather than as your enemy is a critically important part of it because the way you find the story is you write something that's going to suck generally because I don't think anybody, I don't know any writers who, who can write it the first time and get it right. I don't know anybody who can do that. Um, and then you, it sucks. And you're okay with it sucking. Like that's the most important thing. Because if you you've got that guy in your in your head who's telling you when you're writing, and I'm sure writers in the audience have experience, and that voice is going, "You suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. This is terrible. You are terrible." And at some point, you've got to say, "Yeah, okay, you're right, but shut up, because this is how you get there." And you let it suck. You let you let yourself write something that sucks, and then you learn from it, and then you rewrite it. And hope, and that voice is still going to be there saying, "You suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck." And if you've got honest friends and family and coworkers, they're going to say some version of that to you as well. And they're not your enemy, you yeah. know. Um, you, you, sorry. No, go ahead. Keep going. And user testing is not your enemy because usually when you test anything, 
you give it to somebody, it's your first stab at it. It's going to suck. And that courage to live through that criticism and not to reject it. And that doesn't mean every time somebody tells you it sucks, they're going to say, well, it sucks because of X. And generally it's going to, that's not what matters because of X. Oh, sorry. They suck because of X is fine, but they're going to say, oh, you should do this instead. That's not what you need to take away. Maybe they'll have some good ideas, but if everybody's telling you it sucks, they're probably right. They won't be able to tell you how to fix it. That's your job. You got to figure out how to fix it. And you should solicit opinions, listen to people, be brave enough to know when, you know, every now and then you're going to get an outlier and they're going to tell you it should be something else. You're going to feel very strongly about it, but they're not writing the story. But if a lot of people are telling you it sucks or it's your early draft, I can guarantee you it's going to suck. That's okay. And I think the biggest job of the writer is to learn how to live with that voice in your head that's telling you that and not freak out from it. And I think as over as I've gotten older, that's been the the biggest blessing I've had as a writer is learning to live with that voice um, and not worrying so much at the beginning. And, so, and you will have to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Well, and I love that. And so before we get to our next question from Arcade, I want to follow up with that by saying, you know, in a, in a way you want people to fail and rewrite their script uh, or the story, but at the same time, even for the player, right, the user and uh, the character in the story itself, you want them to fail. Otherwise, they're just going to succeed, succeed, and it's just going to be a straight line to the goal, right? So you want your creators of the stories to fail and rewrite, but then even when you're in the game, you want your users and the players to, in a way, be challenged but fail and keep trying and try different things, right? Yeah, I think the best games allow the player to make mistakes, right? Because without mistakes, what does success feel like? Mm -hmm. You know, you need something to compare it to. Mm -hmm. um, another weird secret of making games, too, like another objective truth, I think, in making games. And I'm trying to give as many objective things as I can because those are questions useful for anybody. Um, and they're not freighted down by, like, you know, science fiction stories are good and, 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 and fantasy stories are dumb, right? That's, that's a subjective thing, right? And that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, romance is good and, you know, um, you know, a, a strong, you know, female character is good and a weak one is bad or, or a, you know, a, a brave man, you know, a, a, uh, a sense, you know, the, a, 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 a macho man is good and, 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 a, and, a, and a, a less macho man is bad. Like those are all subjective things that are varying to taste. The things I'm trying to talk today are about things that are absolutely true in anything you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the player experience, yeah, the player, um, allowing the player to fail is not forcing them to fail, but allowing the player to fail is critically important because then they feel that they're growing and they're changing throughout the experience. Um, and, you know, ideally giving them choice, and choice is very tricky in the narrative space. Um, I did a talk about this a few years ago at GDC called Narrative Legos, where, you know, things we're trying to work on to allow the player to fail more. And if you allow them to fail more and the story can repair itself from that player's failure, just like life does, right? You fail. That doesn't mean you die, you know, generally when you fail. Yeah, sometimes it does. You walk off a cliff, right? Um, but you generally you make, you're going to make a, a million mistakes in your life and you're going to have, and the trick of life is how do you come back from those mistakes? And games allow you to make mistakes in a safe environment. Um, and that's, but that's part of the joy. But another objective truth that I was getting to is that this isn't really a narrative thing, but game balance is it's probably the most important tool a game designer has. Like if a game, you can have the best game in the world and if the, if the challenges are too easy or the challenges are too hard, you're going to lose that player. The, the art can be beautiful. The story could be great. The systems could be cool, but you make, you know, your first enemy. I mean, you, I always take an extreme example. Your first enemy has a million hit points and you've got a gun that does one hit point per shot. The game is going to not going to be fun. I don't care how good everything else is. So, if you fail on the balance side, everything else will fail along with it. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. All right. Well, I can ask questions all day, and this is such a big topic. You know, we can go in any direction, but I'd love to get the audience involved. So, again, if you're in the audience, you have a question, send me a DM. We're trying to, I'm trying to go through a huge queue of them at the moment, but I'd love to keep filtering it through. Um, and then request – just raise your hand. Request to speak as well. So we have two people patiently waiting. Arcade, you and I connected recently as well. I'm sure you have a great question. Please, what's on your mind? 
Hi, thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate your time, Ken, as well. Um, two quick questions. If you could actually visit Rapture in real life, let's imagine it actually existed, would you ever like to go there in all its glory? And if you could choose a plasmid for yourself, um, <laughs> out of all the plasmids in the game, what would you personally inject into yourself to give you extra powers? Thank you. Um, thanks, Mark. It's great questions. Um, I haven't heard either one of those before. Um, the um, going to Rapture, if I can leave, you know, whenever I wanted to, I, of course, I'd love to go. I imagine if really there, it's probably not a super pleasant place. You know, very dangerous. Probably, if you ever been, ever had, you know, your house get flooded. You know, come back a week later, it doesn't smell so good. It probably smells of mildew and rot and dead bodies and all that miserable stuff, which fortunately the games don't um, convey that experience. But yeah, of course, I think, you know, I, I tend to work on games and with the team and make games that I want to play. And I tend to make worlds that I'd like to visit. Um, and that's the joy of writing and creating is you get to go to those places in your head and then you know if you're making a game and it actually gets made you get to actually see that thing you had in your head for real so i made rapture was for me it was the experience of being a kid and going to new york you know i had relatives in new york who were all part of you know the jewish diaspora following you know the the you know the um russian revolution and 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 world war ii and you know i grew up going to rockefeller center and seeing that art deco you know all the Art Deco buildings and the Empire State Building. And I just took all those things I loved, that feeling I loved, my, my background as a kid going to New York. Even the Splicers, you know, came from this feeling of, you know, at one point in New York, they, um, a lot of, they, they sort of closed a lot of the mental hospitals and just unleashed these poor people on the streets. And having that experience of, you know, of, of you know, a, a very scary New York for a young kid um and these you know and observing being totally unprepared as a child to experience you know people in that state of, of mental illness and not understanding what it was and both being um, scared but fascinated but not really understanding um was something that um that was part of, of the story and all those things came together in creating this very dark but fascinating place that I sort of was made out of a bunch of crap that I had in my head from my childhood. Um, so yeah, I would like to, um, I, I would like to visit it, but I, only if I could leave when the moment, like a big daddy tried to kill me. Um, the second question was what, what again, Arcade? Uh, just if you could inject yourself any plasmids, what power would you give yourself? Oh God. I don't know. I kind of like probably the bees. Like I would <laughs> like to be able to launch bees from my hand because I'm sure that has a lot of practical usages in real life. Um, there, there were a lot of plasmids that were pro that were like, um, you know, that they talked about that didn't actually play in the game about, you know, make yourself stronger, younger, healthier. Those are probably things that I, you know, you know, regain your youth. You know, they're probably something more of that than shooting bees out of your hand. Um, but. Yeah, but the ones that we use practically in the game were more oriented as combat, and I haven't needed to light, I haven't needed to electrocute somebody or light them on fire recently, so those probably wouldn't be as appealing to me. Well, thank you, Arcade. Those are great questions. I'm glad that you joined us, and Ken, thanks for answering those. We have more people. I got the longest queue I've ever had of, of back messages, but I'm trying to go through them as fast as possible. Keep raising your hands. Keep sending those questions to me. Uh, David, you're next. You've been waiting patiently. What's on your mind? And then we'll go to Chef and then Chris. David as in me, David? Yeah. <laughs> There's only Davids usually. Sorry, thank you. Yep, yeah, hey, uh, yeah, no, I was, I, 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 Ken, man, it's so great to hear you share some, of, I call this a master class in the tweet I just sent out. And, you know, my, my point is, or at least I'd like to say something and then ask a question. You know, I worked at Atari Games at the Mothership in arcade in arcade space, right? San Francisco Rush was was one of my products. Oh wow! Yeah, but I, you know, growing up in that in our generation, that generation, you know, the role of D and D, you know, at the dawn of PC gaming, right? So you go back to Chris Crawford and Buddy Lewis Castle, Westwood Studios, and and just how stories and how engaging storytelling was and how fundamentally important it was to PC games. And so my question is, you know, stories is a best practice for engagement. And what I've seen being in and out of games over the last few decades is just games lead tech. And, you know, you can see how 
now, you know, storytelling, you know, have your customers talk on your behalf, you know, just the storytelling for engagement in so many other different um, areas of tech. Now at the dawn, my question is now at the dawn of the emergence of AI, how it's evolved, right? And the metaverse, can you share some thoughts of what, how this storytelling is going to be changing when we're meeting NPCs in these immersive worlds, you know, and uh, just any kinds of thoughts you have to share as a, stories as a craft or just, you know, fears or anything with regards to looking forward. Thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts and thanks for having this Twitter space. It's amazing. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. I appreciate the question. I appreciate the games you did. Um, the, yeah, the metaverse and all that stuff that's coming, the whole sort of multiplayer space is a really tricky problem in terms of storytelling because generally in multiplayer games, the players are making their own story. Um, you know, the story of the struggle they had to, you know, capture the flag or, or, or whatever they're trying to do. Um, because, and I think a bunch of people like have tried to introduce, you know, sort of storytelling into, into, um, you know, very traditional narrative storytelling in the multiplayer, and, it, and with very mixed results. I think it's a really hard problem, and it's not a problem I spent a lot of time thinking about. Mostly because I spend, I'm a really a single player gamer. I tend not my social. I like my socialization to happen. You know, like dinner parties or going out with friends or whatever. And I tend to like. I kind of view gaming as for me as a quiet, reflective time. Um, it's a way for me to get away from my problems, get a sense of control in the world, all that stuff. But I think that. It's a different set of thorny problems that you're getting into, and multiplayer is really for a group of people to work together. And the story is the story of the group working together, and or the conflicts in the group. And I think that if you, somebody can figure out how to make the group dynamics interesting, and I think you're seeing games that tried to do that, like um, you know, games that where there's a villain. Oh, what was that game uh, Among Us? I think um, you know, like where there's a villain. You know, one character's a villain. And figure out who the villain is, which comes from board gaming um, originally, um, where there's a, a traitor story. Essentially, I think those are the best way for narrative to go. Is how do you play with group dynamics of individuals and not sort of try to lock everybody in a room, a room and show them a cutscene? I think I think people have tried to do that in multiplayer game. It doesn't really work. That said. World of Warcraft has some of the best storytelling I've ever seen. Not in the, I don't really, I'm not into the lore at all. I don't really understand the lore. I never really followed the lore, but the, the spaces, the visual spaces have great storytelling in them. You really get a sense of a giant, you know, of a scope much bigger than anything like Rapture or something like that because, you know, the world is just huge. And that, just that notion of walking through a world and seeing the artifacts of that world laid out, I think that's how you can do visual storytelling. Still in a multi in a multiplayer game, but I think for multiplayer storytelling, it, it, it is the group dynamic and how you leverage the group dynamic. How do you ideally? There's an old board game called um, Diplomacy. I don't know if you've heard, anybody's ever played it, but the game itself is incredibly simplistic. It's basically a pre World War One setting, and one person plays you know uh, um, Russia, one person plays Germany, one person plays the UK. It's like seven different nations, and the whole game is the negotiations you have. And you all basically negotiate, like, I'm going to attack him. Will you support me? Um, he, he's going to attack me. Can you support me? And then, but you don't have to tell the truth in those negotiations. And then everybody writes down their plans for that turn, and all the, all the turns resolved at once. And then you see who told you the truth and who lied to you. And that is a story. I had one game of diplomacy. I was working at Looking Glass, and I got crushed by this guy who was the nicest, most honest guy in the real world, but he was a scumbag playing diplomacy. And I'm still mad at him for what he did. And he never would do anything like that in real life. That's a story I'll never forget. So, you know, if I were to go in that space, that would be where I'd push. I love it. David, thank you for asking that question. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, David. Glad you could join. Great question as well. So many great questions, and, and I can't believe how many messages I'm getting. It's unbelievable. But let's keep going for all the people that are patiently waiting. Thank you so much. And uh, Ken, I appreciate your time to talk and, and to go through these questions as well. So, Chef, you're up next, and then we'll go Chris, Charles, and Crimson. Awesome, Ken. Big fan of all your work. Appreciate you uh, coming in and doing the space. Um, very on brand for a chef. I would like to know your experience with food and beverages in gaming, whether that's storytelling, the thought process on how food and beverage is going to be implemented into gaming, 
um, or how you use that as part of your story uh, storytelling devices in these games? That's a great question. Um, and an interesting one. I've, again, I was, I've never got any of these questions so far in my life, which is great. I like getting new questions. Um, I think food, like like when we did System Shock 2, we had very, in our first game we did, we had very crude, tool, very crude tools to decorate the world with. But we spent, and we had very few resources for assets to build, but when we built the spaceship, it was very important to me that the space feel grounded and human. And so we did things like made eating area, you know, like there's a spaceship, usually like if you play Quake or something or Doom, the spaceship is not, and I love those games, but this, you know, if it's on a spaceship, like the last, um, um, last Doom in 2016 was set on a colony, I think on Mars. And the spaces aren't designed really for human scale interactions. And so they're designed for, to support the gameplay, which is right for that game. But when we made System Shock 2, we made Bioshock, it was very important to us that the human experience, that this was a space that humans lived in. It wasn't a space designed by game designers for combat. It was designed for human, that you were in a space that was occupied by humans doing relatively normal human activities. And food is a critical part of that, right? What do we, what do, what do, we do every day, multiple times, you know, at least three times a day? I would imagine, too, that Rapture in its prime, when it was functioning appropriately, had the best food and beverages you could find in the world. I'd imagine yeah. that that is one of the great advantages of Rapture in its prime. Yeah, Rapture attracted the best and the brightest, right? You know, the people who are at the top of their craft. So, you know, we had a, a you know, a, 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 a theater guy, you know, like Sandra Cohen, a musician and a theatrical guy. We had great surgeons and, you know, great artists. And I imagine great chefs would be a huge part of that. And actually one of the first, the first space we built for Rapture was a restaurant. Uh, the beginning of place, a restaurant and dinner club. And that was really critical because we wanted this sort of con the conflict between the revolution that happened in Rapture started in a restaurant. And um, so I think we could have, you know, if we, if we, if, you know, we could have made a chef character who could have been driven by the same insane desire for perfection that all the other characters are driven by, driven mad by that desire for perfection. But food is a great grounding element because it tells you that people live there. And I, so I think it definitely has a role in all of our games have had food, you know, and restaurants, um, because that's what makes spaces believable. It's one of the most common types of, of things you encounter in the world. And it also helps tell you, you know, hey, this is a real space. Humans lived here and they had interests and they had tastes. It had nothing to do with the experience you're on. But that lack of focus on the combat experience actually, I think, makes the game world come to life in a way that you can't if you don't take account of those things. I love it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Now, and again, to your point, you're going to get a lot of interesting questions, right? So um, let's keep going with a few more people. We have, I think, Chris, you were pa patiently waiting, and then Charles, and then Crimson. Go right ahead, Chris. Hi. Um, big, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I got my heart in my throat. I didn't expect to be able to speak to you. Um, I'm a big fan of your game. My sister's a big fan, loves Lutess. Um, my question is kind of, in storytelling, the group effort that it takes. You were mentioning earlier how you get feedback from everyone else, and obviously you didn't create the Bioshock and System Shock stories from your bare hands with nothing. There was a team behind you, and they helped input. And so I wanted to know how valuable that kind of, um, how valuable that input is and what that process is like when it's like you have an idea and then you have someone kind of expand it in their way versus giving you feedback and that kind of thing? Sure. That's a, good, a great question. Um, you know, it starts off lonely and gets less lonely as time goes on. You know, like with certainly with System Shock uh, and Bioshock, I was more working on, we had other writers involved on Bioshock originally, and then I sort of came, I I learned a lesson that I really need, like I thought like I could have somebody else write it originally. And the poor person who worked on it, I think, you know, I sort of gave them an impossible task because I, I really, you know, for almost all our games, um, you know, I really like to be in the center, the, you know, the, this, the lead writing chair because that helps me. Um, the writing is just part of it, right? Like the storytelling of these games, the writing is a, is, a, is a fraction of it. But then, you know, the artists have to help tell a story. That's why I asked that question. You told almost everybody, what story are you trying to tell? Because if we're not telling the same story, if we're not pulling in the same direction, I can't do it without them. Um, and now I even, you know, even on the writing side, I've been working, you know, I've got a guy with me, a guy named Drew Mitchell, 
who is a um, very capable writer. And he and I sort of, you know, are, and, with the, and Sean Robertson on the art team, I don't, we sort of start a lot of things together now. Um, or I'll come up with some idea or somebody else come up with some idea and then we'll get together and talk about it and work it through, break it down um, to an outline. Then Drew often will take a first pass and then I will go and, and you know, clean it up and then he'll something in the game design will change and I'll have to go back and do another pass and I'll have to go back and do my pass on it. Um, it really is collaborative because if you don't have the art, if you don't have the music, you don't have the... You know, music, as you guys could probably tell, is also critically important to me to storytelling, like in my games. And this really started um, on Bioshock, um, both the sort of score, which I never really thought we'd have a big score in that game until the sound designer, Emily Ridgway, said, you got to meet this guy, Gary Scheiman. Um, and they wrote this Descent to Rapture. He wrote a, a, a basically one piece, which is called Descent to Rapture, which you see at the beginning of the game when you go down to Rapture. I don't know if it's called that. Actually, I don't know if that's actually the title of the piece, but it was the piece playing over that. And I was like, oh my God, the score can add so much to it. And I never thought really of score much before, but then also going off and coming with the licensed music you know, that we had in that game from the period is also a huge part of the storytelling. There is The storytelling just doesn't come from the writer. The storytelling comes from everybody on the team. But you all got to be telling the same story. So yes, it's a good question. And it's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a solo job like a novelist, not even remotely. That is a fascinating question, Chris. I'm glad that you asked it. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely, Chris. And so we'll go to a few more people. And then I have great questions because I um, am collecting. I haven't even been able to ask all my questions because I want you in the audience to be able to ask as many questions as possible. Uh, Charles, you've been patiently waiting. And then Crimson. Hey, what's going on, guys? Great space. Thanks for having me on. Um, Big fan of the work, Ken. Uh, since the topic is storytelling and gaming, and it's something that um, I'm, I'm dealing with pretty regularly in the entertainment world, is you know the coverage and, and talking to people who are involved with various TV and film projects around game stories, and, and vice versa. Obviously, I'd love to hear. Obviously, you've had your own personal experiences with those, and uh, you've written some incredible stories in the game perspective. You know, what, have you? Do you think any films or any? films based on video games have done it right and what do you think is the bridge that needs to be gapped and uh, maybe what stories would you like to see on film uh, i don't think it has really been done great so far i think they've really struggled and i think you really need people who understand like if you look at feige and the marvel films i think the reason they work so well is he both understands what films are but also really understood the source material and honored the source material. Not that's not to say he recreated it exactly. Um, you know, even Iron Man, like you know, Downey is a you know Tony Stark is a combination of the Tony Stark character and Downey. It's not really the Tony Stark character from from the from the um, the comics. Because so Tony Stark's actually not the most by far not the most interesting character in the comics. You know, you have like much more characters, much stronger conflicts. Like you know, Peter Parker has got such a great origin story, and so you don't really need to do much to change that character. Um, but I think when somebody who's really a fan of the material, but also really understands the medium they're working in, it, that's what it's going to take. And that's what it took for comics. You know, there were so many crappy comics movies until people came along who, who, who respected and loved the source material. And I think that's got to happen. And right now, most of what I've seen in Hollywood is, you know, the view on games is games are sort of junior varsity movies. And, um, they're really interested in making movies out of games just because of the name recognition, but it's a, it's a, it's a hard problem to solve and somebody's going to solve it. And then it's, there's no reason why games can't be a source for stories just the way comic books and novels have become. It's just, somebody has got to really want to make that story and it will happen someday. The right director will come along. It's also a process of age. You know, um, I'm older, I'm 55 and I didn't have games weren't popular when I was a kid. So a lot of people making movies who are old enough now to have the ability to make a big film are older like that. And they didn't really grow up with it. So I had a lot, of, I've had a lot of meetings when I was a screenwriter and recently I did some screenwriting and a lot of times you meet with an executive and say, look, my son loves your games. So I'm really interested in like, you know, making a movie of, of one of these games, but it, it, they don't love the game. And that's, so that's going to be a huge obstacle to making a great game until you have the people who love the source material and understand it and grow up with it grew up playing games and it was part of their life rather than just seeing it as an opportunity to use an IP to get a movie made. 
Yeah, just as a as a quick follow up, you know, being a uh, you know someone who likes the first person, the single player games, you know, Resident Evil, you know, that's that's one that's coming up that people have you know thrown a lot of money at, hopefully. And you know, do you think that we're eventually getting to this place now with the exposure that the gaming world is getting with Twitch and YouTube signing these huge deals that we're eventually getting to a place where you'd want to you know try to do one of your projects, or you're excited for either Resident Evil or or Halo when it comes out. I mean, the tricky part is, you know, what from the game is what what you know does the game also have a story? Because games are tricky, right? Games are not purely narrative vehicles, as people were pointing out before. That there's hybrid, you know. If you can, like in Resident Evil, any any movie, any story, you really need us like at the center of that is what who is this character? What do they want? You know, what's in their way? That that exists truly too, and so what are the elements you're taking from Resident Evil? Because Resident Evil, in a lot of ways, is a, a, a lot of games are basically. And I've done this myself. They take a medium and they transliter they transplant it. You know, like zombie movies. You know, Resident Evil doesn't exist without George Romero, right? Um, and that was a fan. You know, sort of fans of those zombie movies making their own version, transferring it to the gaming space. Um, I don't know if the original Resident Evil had like a really coherent storyline that you that would you know sort of make a great movie. I know they've you know they they they've tried it, it's expanded over time, but there has to be something unique that you're telling uh, that you that didn't come. Say, in my own case, I didn't make Sam Spade's story. I made you know I took the Sam Spade elements, the film noir elements, and I turned it into like I merged it with the fantasy thing and made this whole new thing that didn't exist before. I think in the same way, a game story has to be something different, something new, um, or it may fall a little flat because somebody was just trying to make their game version of a certain movie they loved. Cool. Awesome. Great, great answers. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Yeah, appreciate it, Charles. And Ken, I usually want to end right on the moment. That would be in about 10 seconds. So do you have a few more minutes for just a couple more questions? Yeah, yeah. yeah keep talking. I'm just going to send a message to my team so I, I think I can um, get it. <laughs> Sorry, Tell team. <laughs> um, Crimson, thank you so much. We really appreciate your patience. Uh, while Ken is sending a message over to his team to give us a few more minutes of time, uh, why don't you go ahead, Crimson, and share your question for us? Okay, thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody for kind of taking the time to do this. This is the first space I've participated in, and it's been it's been great. Um, Ken, I'm a huge fan of your work and Irrational Games' work, and the question I wanted to ask you is kind of what Chef asked along the lines of creating creating a space that feels like it's it's lived in and how you and your team go about doing that. Um, the first time I played Bioshock, I actually shared it with my younger brother who had kind of a very narrow set of games that he wanted to play, but he was immediately pulled into rapture it was the first thing out of his mouth this place feels real and i wanted to get a sense a little bit more of how the teams you work with make a make a space feel lived in in like a world that actually exists and not just kind of like an environment yeah that's a great question thank crimson um I think it's, it's you know as, as we as I mentioned before, it's going back to that human scale. Um, I think Sean Robertson, our our director, sort of threw that term in at one point, which is very useful because even as we work on new things, a lot of times things sort of you know you you have a lot of conflicting demands on your spaces. Like they have to work. You know, we're not making um, you know we're not making walking simulators where the only thing that you need to do is be in the environment. We have other demands in our game like combat and. Um, um, and I mean that, by the way, some people use that term derisively. I don't use it at all. I mm -hmm. like those games a lot. Um, um, but they have a different, you know, they, they, they really focus on human scale spaces, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's Edith Finch or Gone Home, that, and that makes them extremely evocative. And we have these other masters to serve in our games, which are, you know, the combat and the gameplay and, um, which can make it tricky to balance those. But I think mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, these questions I said before, you know, what story we're trying to tell, you know, what is this world? What is people's life? Like, what is the, what is it? Okay. Sometimes you, you get really distant from the thing and you just like, sometimes I just sit in a chair at night and I'm like, and I try to go to the place of the game I'm working on, close my eyes and I just try to go. And I, I don't think about the story. I don't think about the combat. I just think about like, what's it like to sit 
you know, as, as chef said before, like in a restaurant there, you know, mm-hmm. what's, what's that like? What's that feel like? What's it like to walk down a corridor? What's it like to, you know, have a drink with a friend? What's it like to go on a date, you know, in rapture um, when it was in its prime? Um, and those sort of uh, games can become very artificial. It's very easy for a game to become artificial, but there's so much artificiality to them, like, you know, the gameplay and the combat and the super heroic elements of it. But I think just centering yourself and having lots of conversations about what life was like, because every asset you build needs to support that. Like, you don't have the room to make things that don't support that story. So, like, for instance, when we did um, a very quick story, and then I got, they're probably going to run, but we did the, the medical level in Bioshock. Originally, it was just like a, it's a hospital, right? And here's the administration room, and here's this. And we had a conversation. We're like, is that what would happen? Would there be a hospital or would it be a bunch of competing businesses? Would it be a much more sort of tawdry kind of way mm-hmm. approach to medical if you remove all constraints from from any sort of regulation? And then we sort of came up with this very capitalist, you know, like a much more, um, you know, they're selling something and they're selling, yeah. and that's where Steinman came out of. Like the, the logical extension of like, let's have a medical level, which is sort of a standard thing in video games, a medical level, right? We had it in System Shock too. To, Let's have a level where people are selling their wares and there's no restrictions. And what is that like? And the character of Steinman selling this extreme plastic surgery where you can become anything. And then him going, him going insane in his search for perfection. It went from this very raw, boring hospital level to something very specifically about rapture, very specifically about life and rapture. And then out of that came this character who was just a reflection of Randy Ryan, just a reflection of Rapture, that in his quest for perfection, he went insane. And doing that in the realm of plastic surgery, we thought was a very, you know, the most visual way to tell that story. Um, and so just try to be, try to remove all the artificiality, just meditate. I mean, literally, sit in a chair, put the lights out, and, time, and just close your eyes and try to travel there and just think of the most mundane things you can do you know, what do the ashtrays look like? You know, what do the chairs look like? What kind of food, you know, as, as, as the chef was talking about earlier, what kind of food do they eat there? What, mm-hmm. would, what, 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 what conversations might you hear at the next table, you know, when you're eating there? Yeah. Um, and if you can do those things, if you can get down to that root level, it's going to make your storytelling, um, it's going to make your storytelling better, more believable, more grounded. Well, thank okay. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Crimson. And uh, Ken, I know you got to go. I promised my best friend who wasn't able to make it today. Her name's Christina. She had a quick question and it's her dream. You know, you're her favorite. And she said her dream is to see Bioshock. It's a streaming show or movie. Uh, and she heard your interview with Del Toro, Guillermo, De- Guillermo Del Toro. Uh, and would love to know if there's any possibility of working on something like that in the future. Um, I, you know, it's not something I'm focused on right now because I'm working on the new thing. Um, but I, you know, it, we get a lot, certainly we get lots of interest. We've had lots of interest in over time and there've been a couple of false starts in that direction. I'm sure you can read about in public. Um, and it's a hard problem, you know, cause I think for me, if I had my say, you know, I don't want something made just to make it because it's, it's really important to me, you know, the world is really important to me. And again, it would have to be, you know, if I, you know, if I was controlling it, you know, that process, which is I'm not because I'm focused on the new thing, it would be somebody who loved the material um, and somebody who understood the material and somebody who wanted to make something that was both a movie, but also wasn't, uh, we've had a lot of people come along who I, I had a conversation. I'll say this very quickly and I got to run, but I had a conversation with a very famous film director once who sat, sat down, read the material, wanted to talk to me about it. And the first question about Bioshock, he said, Ken, I love this, but does it have to be underwater? <laughs> and um, and that's what you get a lot. It's not because they're bad. It's, it's I'm a huge fan of this guy. It's just because people want to make often want to make the film they want to make, and having the IP sort of helps them get it made. And to me, it's really do they want to make this thing, and do they want to tell that story, mm-hmm. um, or not? And it's a tricky problem because film as a whole. There's a reason they call it development hell, you know, when films are being developed. It's a very complicated thing that requires a lot of people. Generally, when I want to make a game, I'm fortunate enough that I got to the place where I can say to, you know, my boss would take two, hey, Carl, this is what I want to do. 
and he trusts me enough where he's like, okay, I don't know. Sounds kind of weird to me, but sure, go try to do it. And then my job is to, you know, make something that eventually people are going to love and, and they're going to, and they're going to like, it's very different than the film development process. And, um, I'm certainly not a master of that space. And, um, I think it's tricky. It could happen. I just, you know, it, it's just, it's a tricky process and hopefully you'll be somebody who really loves the material and, and wants to make, and wants to make it. Fair answer, Ken. Well, I know we've been running along. Really appreciate your time. I have so many questions I could ask you. I have so many questions in my DMs. And we have over 1,500 people in the room all of a sudden. So thank you so much. We'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, let's do it again. Let's do it again. I, I like this format, and I've really enjoyed it. And it's really great, unique questions for everybody. So thanks, thanks, thanks to everybody. I really appreciate it. Yep. All right. Take care, Ken. Bye-bye. Bye. And thank you for everyone in the audience today. This is so special to be able to talk with Ken. He rarely does interviews. I've been working for six months to pull this one off, but I'm glad that you're here. And like you just heard, there is so much more that we can cover about storytelling, whether in gaming or beyond. So be on the lookout. We have a lot of more great interviews coming up with other great storytellers. And if you have great suggestions as well, please send me a DM. I'd love to hear them. Again, my name is Adam Soklich. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Soklich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.